Psalm 27 is where we're at, so you can open up there. And um, lots of things going on and lots of ways to, uh, to be involved. Part of the discernment on your own part will be how to lead your life well and lead your family well in determining not to overdo it, but not to underdo it and uh, sit by. So we pray that that will be a help to you. We've been talking uh, for a good season of time now about this idea of smitten, and um, it really comes from a passage in uh, 1 Corinthians that talks about this, that the love of Christ controls us. And we're looking at what does it look like to have the love of Christ controls, control us. That sounds really great, but it also can be really nebulous. Yeah, the love of Christ controls me to do X, Y, Z. The passage goes on to say this, for the love of Christ controls us, Because we know that one died for all, and therefore all died. So it's based on the gospel. It's based on that event, that truth. And therefore, the love of Christ controls us. Or some of your versions say, compel us. And we're really looking at God as lover. And he reveals himself so many times. You're going to see again, probably some passages you may have read before, but never thought about it in terms of, of God revealing himself as a lover, but it's right there in the text. You show me if I'm wrong in it, if I'm reading it wrong, but there it is laying right before us. I started this whole series talking about the idea of uh, of King David for the most part, but there's other people who are writing this too, but as a grown man writing these love songs and writing these poems and singing these things and creating this art that I think if we're honest, I know that if I'm honest, I look at that and say, I long for that to be true. But I don't know if I would have written that. I read that and there's something in me that's drawn to that. I say, I want that to be true, but but that's not what is just boiling out of me all the time. And so God, could you grow me? Could you could you lead me into, into bigger rooms of your love and what it means to be known by you and what it means to know you? Could you show yourself that way? And that's that's what this series has really been about. In Psalm 27 is where we're going to kind of focus this morning. But this one was really hard to pin down uh, to a single psalm. And so uh, I grabbed, really, there's one verse we're going to look at pretty extensively this morning. And then I'm going to pull from a few other places in the psalms. But look down at verse 4. Psalm 27, 4 says this. We just sang something to this effect. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. We're going to talk about our lover as beautiful this morning. We're going to look at what does it mean to say that God is beautiful. And for sure, there's there's some of you in this room that may have had this experience or you're experiencing it right now. You say, look, person A and person B have both received Christ. Both of them have trusted And to one, you would look at their life, you would look at their language, you would look at what they prize and treasure most, and you would say, man, what oozes out of that person is that they really do find beauty in God. They see God as beautiful. And they sing beautiful one with a different level of passion and conviction and experience than person B. Person B maybe has received Christ too. But if they're honest with themselves and they just look at themselves, they say, man, I've never willfully shed a tear in church because God is just so beautiful to me. 
I've never had these things well up in me. Why is that? And we're going to explore person A and person B a little bit here today. Here's what's interesting is that we can be person A and person B sometimes over the course of time. But I think there's a distinguishable difference between the two and with what's going on with that. To start with the idea of of God as being beautiful, I want to just explore this question. What is beautiful? If you were right now to have to pin down a definition for beautiful, I would say you might be hard-pressed. I mean, to really capture what it is to have something be beautiful to you. Isn't that a challenge? Really a challenge. Part of your community group questions this week is going to be to take that concept and explain it to a six-year-old. You know why? Sometimes it's easier when we just... We, we lose all the peripheral and we say, okay, how would I explain this to a first grader? And there's a real challenge in that. Jesus was the master at taking complex truths and simplifying it down to a little seed that gets planted in the ground and he starts teaching from it. But if you were to describe beauty, it would be difficult. A question would arise, is it subjective or is it objective? I'd venture to guess most in this room would say, well, it's subjective meaning that it's not one thing for all of people. And oftentimes we hear phrases like this, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? But beauty is in the eye of the beholder begs some questions that I want to throw out to you that maybe we haven't thought about before. Um, by the way, this intro alone, I considered chucking completely because I was getting not lost, but there's so much here. Hang tight with me, okay? Hang tight with me. We're going to get to a part where it's an easier part in the river, and you're just kind of paddling like, okay, I'm tracking with everything that's going on. This first part, I'm just, I'm telling you right now, hang on tight. It's going to be a little rough. I want you to stay with me, okay? And if you start to lose me completely, um, go back and listen to the podcast and see if I made sense. By God's grace, something good is going to come out of this. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder really starts to, to, to beg a, a, a bigger question. Uh, beauty is hard to define, to, to define, but it does imply, ch- check this out, beauty implies an ideal. In other words, to say that something is beautiful, you're saying beautiful compared to what? And so it implies that there's some kind of ideal out there. It implies that there's some kind of standard that we would say that is more beautiful and that is less beautiful. Life and death, for instance. Let's take these two subjects. Life in general, we might think of as um, as beautiful, and death as ugly, as not so beautiful. And yet, some some things I want to throw at you that, that might confuse us a little bit, but track with me. Um, almost universally, I've been to a handful of countries in the world, and uh, at various times I've had my computer open, I've looked at things. I haven't really interviewed the entire world on this. Um, that's left to be done some, for someone else. But universally, there are some things that are beautiful. Let me talk about autumn for, for a second, okay? We're, we're trying to move into autumn. The, the weather isn't cooperating. It's California. We never know what's happening. But it's trying to get there. It teased us a couple weeks ago. But look at this picture. Uh, autumn is, is universally beautiful. There, there is a sense of autumn. I've never been to Maine, but I've longed to go to Maine sometime around this time of year because of the seafood and the, and the sights. It just sounds amazing to me. It's on my to-do list. And universally, we would look at this and say, there's beauty in the changing of the color of the leaves that are going on. And yet, autumn is a season of death, right? Autumn is a season of death. So if you went just by kind of logic, you would say, well, that throws that 
you know, into a curve. If life is inherently beautiful, then a teeming colony of maggots ought to just erupt praise and joy from us. Oh, look at that. But how many of you would have that experience? No, you wouldn't. A couple of smart alecks are like, yeah, I love that. But the reality is you open up a thing of teeming maggots and you're repulsed by it. You want it away from you. If it's in your home or something, you want it out of your home. That little scene is teeming with life. But it's not beautiful to anyone I've ever met. And I would venture to say it's not beautiful to anyone you'll ever meet. The idea that beauty is in the the eye of the beholder implies this, that it's all just subjective to everyone. But let me throw this out to you. I would suggest that there actually is objective, absolute to beauty. And that the problem that sometimes is a barrier to us is our sin nature and our struggle with our flesh and the things that we're dealing with here on this side of eternity. Variations in... uh, in people's preferences are just that. They're variations of, of big categories. Let me give you a, a couple of examples of that. Um, in most every culture that is in the world or in known history, there has been dance, music, taste, and touch, all of which have been seen as good and beautiful. Now, again, there are variations to what music is like just within the home, right? You take a teenager, mom, and grandpa driving in the car, there's going to be, yeah, there's going to be a little bit of a, a taste difference, right? But those are all variations of music, which people find beautiful. Uh, sometimes Christians are uh, seen as anti-science. What I want to do this morning is I want to intro a little idea to us with regard to beauty and science and say this. Science that leaves God out of the picture cannot provide any explanation for beauty. Um, A naturalist is one who, in essence, uh, views the natural world as all that is real and knowable and definable and is, and that there is no supernatural. And so anyone who would talk of miracles, anyone who would talk of of greater meaning outside of what you can see and touch and taste and, and, and measure... Um, is is not real. It's living a delusional life. I hope as a Christian you've been called that before. I hope you've been called delusional before. I hope people, honest thinking people, have looked at you and seen you as mad or crazy because you believe in some of these things. What I want to talk to you about today uh, with regard to beauty is to is to push back on that a little bit. C.S. Lewis said that he used to be a materialist, but most... Ma- materialists move into naturalists because a materialist literally says it's just what you can see. A naturalist adds something because they found a limitation to a a materialist, and that is the nebulous idea of energy being added to it. So now we can call energy and say this this accounts for how we're here and some of these different kinds of things. Hang with me. I told you it'd be tough. All right, back to a naturalist for a second, okay? A naturalist is consumed and really, really interested in the mechanics of things. They take something that is there and they want to break it down into their parts. Now, a good scientist will, 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 will do this as well. So there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But obsessed with the mechanics and to reduce all things down to their parts and how they, how they work can leave some problems. There's no meaning or purpose behind the universe for a naturalist. Let me say that again. There is no meaning or purpose 
behind the universe for a naturalist because that would imply that there was a designer for these mechanics to meet that purpose. Tracking with that? If it's just all that we can see, then there can't be a designer that's there that, that has a means to the end for the naturalist. This poses a great problem when you bring up the idea of beauty. Why do some things make us get chills? Why do we, why do we sit with our jaws open staring at something if it's beautiful? Now, a naturalist does have some ideas for this. Catch this. Um, a naturalist would say this, that, uh, and maybe you've heard this on your favorite, uh, um, Scott, do me a favor. I'm not advancing. Can you advance me? There we go. Um, I'm going to advance one more. I'm going to go back one. I'm sorry, guys. This is not advancing for me, so I need help. Nope, there we go. Um, all right. The mystery of, of beauty. A naturalist would say this, that form follows function. In other words, that which is most functional, that which is most efficient, is what we call beauty. And that's why we have this sense of beauty. We wouldn't impose that there's a designer out there that's put that on us, but rather we find things beautiful because they're functional or efficient. These are the same people that say that the curves of a woman are beautiful to a man because they help sustain the species. Not a fun guy to be married to, I promise you that, but th- this is their reasoning for that. I love uh, Planet Earth, which is a whole series, but Planet Earth, the, the documentary, the, the words behind it, it almost gets silly. They sit there and try to comment on these different colors and patterns in nature that we find marvelous, and yet they sometimes put these ludicrous stamps on it as to why that's so. Because form always follows function to a naturalist. Now, I already tipped my hand here, but this is a Prius. Now, to, with apologies to Prius owners, this proves that that is not true at all. We don't look at this car and go, so beautiful. I want one. Dad, I want a Prius. I've got a 14-year-old. He's never, ever pointed out a Prius to me. Now, if this were true, this is the pinnacle that we have so far, I think, of efficiency and and form and functionality, right? But but we don't inherently think that that is beautiful. The naturalist has no need for beauty, or better yet, no explanation for it. Uh, some of you like uh, this scene right here, and some of you know it well. It's Yosemite. And uh, there is something just marvelous about Yosemite, and it's amazing to be driving along on a city road and uh, people just literally will stop their car in the middle of a road in this valley floor. They will get out of their car. They will be standing with their jaw open, and there's sometimes even just a reverent silence as people are taking pictures and looking like this. They're staring at a rock. Okay? Now, in its pure naturalist form, that shouldn't be happening. Right? They're staring at a giant rock. Now, there's nothing, if, if this idea that I find beautiful, that which can help me, that which is efficient, that which has some form, half dome blows this out of the water. Because you know what? There's nothing inherently giving to me about half dome outside of something bigger than that. I don't want to go up and give half dome a giant hug. And I'm just laying here like this. I love you, half dome. I don't sit next to half dome and say, you're such a good listener. I just talk to you over and over and you don't, Ever cut me off. 
There's nothing in that, right? There's nothing specifically that says this will benefit your life, and yet you go there sometime. You will see the same thing. People just standing there with their mouth open, staring at this scene. How about food? Food is more than just mechanics. There's something more than mechanics going on when you're eating a meal. Meals are another thing that are universal. Places that I've been, people gather around a meal. Isn't that a giant part of our story with God? Is that he says that the whole gospel is that I will dine with, I will come in and he will dine with me and I with him will have fellowship around this meal. And meals and feasts were actually prescribed by God. Now, if you look at just the mechanics of a meal for a moment, uh, by the way, if you want to see kind of secular outside of church responses, I don't know what their ideology is, but go to Yelp sometime. It's on your iPhone app or on the computer, Yelp.com, and what you will see is little praise poems to food. It's incredible. You take a food place, and they will sit there and tell you all in detail about the nachos of this place. And they will sit there and just write these things. They're having a response to food. Now again, let's press in on a naturalist who says, you're crazy, okay? You're crazy as a Christian for thinking there's something bigger outside of what you can see and taste and touch and smell. Some of us this morning sat down to some kind of a breakfast. Let me take the breakfast of bacon, eggs, honey, and milk for a minute. If you were a naturalist, this is how you would think of breakfast. Again, fun guy to be married to. Fatty slivers from the stomach of a mud-wallowing mammal. The ovulation of a large fowl coagulated by heat. Sticky secretions from the reproductive organs uh, of plants uh, mixed with the saliva of an insect. Yummy. And the discharge from the mammary gland of a ruminating animal. It loses something, doesn't it? I mean, you sit down to breakfast and you hear that. You're just like, I'll pass. Um, Can you not describe it? Just give me some coffee. I'll be good for the day. Here's the point. A dogged naturalist, one who is consistent with their philosophy in life, one who is consistent with potentially their worldview, cannot admit to grandeur in a mountain vista. Here's why. Because grandeur, the whole idea of that, is a concept that requires more meaning than mere mechanics can provide. Grandeur is an idea that requires more meaning than a naturalist can provide with the mechanics and the breaking down of the parts. I'll tell you what, as a Christian, this causes praise in my heart and life. When I look at these realities and these truths, and I realize, wow, there's something going on here that's far bigger than the little specifics that we have in our breakfast. Christians aren't anti-science, not at all. I would say this, only that which is held up as a false god and is dishonest is what a Christian should be against. You should not be against science, reasoning, logic, and thinking. God never, ever separates those two things. He draws them in and it's wound all through Scripture. But I am against someone who is philosophically holding up a worldview that is leaving out the truth and is even dishonest within themselves when it comes to things. The human heart has an insatiable appetite for beauty. We've already talked about the idea that every culture has craftsmanship and art that serves no other functional purpose other than this. It's beautiful. And there's something about seeing something that's beautiful that is 
infectious to us. We say, man, I, I love being around that. I want to be around that. Some of you are artists and craftsmen and you create. And there's something really powerful when you are creating something beautiful. Something's going on inside your own life that is powerful. I've been around the world and seen a few of these different things, but markings in caves, pottery, gardens. Uh, we were in Ethiopia, the National Museum of Ethiopia this summer. Ornate headdresses. I promise you there's no functionality in that. That's just a headache to wear. I mean, it had to be heavy and you had to duck a lot. But I tell you what, they were beautiful. And there they are sitting in this ancient culture halfway around the world. Here's the question that I want to be getting to. We're, we're through the rapids now. You can all just let a little sigh out. Go back and listen to it again if you need to again. But here's the big idea. Here's the question, okay? What is this common longing for beauty doing there? It's inside of you. It's inside of me. And if you were to jump on a plane today and travel somewhere, it would be inside the people that you land and are greeted by. What on earth is it doing there? Now, a Christian has a simple answer for that. We would say this, God put it there. God designed me, and he put that there. And as the perfect, beautiful one, that's what my life is pointing towards. That's what I, that's what I have this longing toward. It's by design. A naturalist would have to, if they stayed with their ideology, would have to have a question mark. Here's the curious thing. I don't poll people when I go to Yosemite. I don't poll people when I go to the many beautiful places just in our great state or when I'm enjoying something like a concert. I don't poll people to ask all of their different theological beliefs. But here's the curious thing. Believer and non-believer respond much the same way to something beautiful. Believer and non-believer do this to Yosemite, to to Yosemite Falls. Let's pick a different place. They'll just sit there and just look at it. They'll gaze at it. Isn't that fascinating? We're, we're responding to a similar thing. Now, if you start to pin us down and ask us our beliefs, we might, we might say different kinds of things that land all over the map. But believer and non-believer, when we come to something like that that's just beautiful, we experience it in much the same way. Romans chapter 1. You don't need to turn there, but listen to these verses. It's familiar to some of you. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 19, says this. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. One of the very first attributes of God we looked at is that our lover speaks. That's called revelation. It means that he's revealing himself to us. He's self-disclosing to us. God has shown it to them. Verse 20 says this, For his invisible attributes, invisible is an important word we'll come back to, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Now, some of you in here aren't nature people. You're not drawn to nature. But the things that have been made, nature is just one category Some people are drawn to nature. Some people are drawn to people. Some people are drawn to design and culture. But all of those things have something in common. They are made. They are created. There's something that's there that you can see and touch. All of these messengers are, are really pointing to the true beauty. They're not the true beauty. Capital T, capital B, true beauty in and of themselves. 
They're merely pointers. And it's our sinful, depraved heart that takes something that's a pointer, that's a messenger, that's a gift, pointing to the gift giver, and starts to hold it up as that which should be worshipped, that should be which should be sought after as ultimate. Going on in this passage, verse 22 says this, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the less of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. That is one of the saddest verses in the Scriptures, and it gives explanation for much of what I see in, in the form of temptation in my own life and the form of folly and evil around me. The last sentence. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. Nature shows what God is like, but isn't God. Nature shows what God is like, but isn't God. Listen to the words of Jesus. Jesus is talking to uh, some people one day, and he says this, Consider the lilies of the field. Consider the lilies of the field. Here's what he's not saying. He's not saying analyze them. He's not saying dissect them, pull them apart, measure them, weigh them, find their molecular structure. He's saying, consider in this sense, gaze upon, take notice of the lilies, behold their beauty, look at them. And then he goes on to appeal to their beauty, showing us something of the love of God and how he cares for his children. Jesus did this all the time. Jesus was not a naturalist, and Jesus was not one who worshipped the created things. But he observed them. He called them out. It is good for a Christian. Christians of all people ought to be enjoying and taking notice of God's beautiful uh, creation. Psalm 27. Uh, We'll get there now. By the way, similar words to beauty in the scripture that you'll find are the word glory and splendor and majesty. These litter our songs. They're all over our poetry and our art and our writings and our hymnals. And so as you read through the scriptures, that's what we're talking about. Psalm 27 starts, we're not going to go through there, but the first three verses are just kind of an an affirmation of confidence in God. And then verses 4 to 6, he really zeroes in, and David is seeking God for who he is. He's going after God and seeking him for who he is. Verse 4, let me read it again. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. This reminds me a little bit of some stories Jesus told. Jesus talked often, or in some different ways, I guess you should say, about the one thing. There's several times where the one thing really rises to the top. What Jesus is doing is he's doing what a great parent does. He says, look, these are side things. We'll talk about those in due time. But let me keep coming back to the most important thing. Mary and Martha, what was Mary doing? 
She was choosing that which was most important. Remember? There will always be chores. There will always be uh, opportunities to serve and share and do other things. If you aren't observing, if you aren't sitting at the feet of Jesus, the most important thing, it all gets ruined. It's literally like letting maggots out into your service. Some of you have served in a church for years, and maggots have gotten into your service. You know what that is? It's neglecting the one thing. And it's turned into works. It's turned into, uh, you know, some kind of a performance for God. To get it back, you say, man, i got to get back to the one thing. Remember Jesus talked about the pearl of great price? What was the pearl of great price? You know what the point of that was? The point was there was something to be treasured and something valuable that was there that was found that was so far above everything else that you could possibly dream or imagine that it says he went off and with joy sold all that he had so that he could get that one thing. The with joy part of it is profound. The with joy part of it says this, that later on when Jesus is saying, if anyone loves their mother or father or brother or sister or anything over me is not worthy to be my disciple. Now that rubs us wrong a little bit sometimes because our, our natural fleshly heart and mind say, but I love my family. How egotistical of God. Until you find out who God is. And you say, he's not saying don't love them. But the love of them ought to be on such a different level that with joy, you would gladly leave your family and the beliefs that they have poured into you because of the fact that you found the truth. You found this pearl of great price. And everything else, the hopes and dreams that you had from the time you were a little kid, everything else falls into the background and you say, all of that come what may but seek first the kingdom of God. I've found what really matters most. God's going to take care of all the rest. We see this played out when disciples leave their business, leave their past life, and it says they turned and they stopped immediately and they followed him, leaving everything. One thing have I asked of the Lord. Warrior David here, in the midst of the battle, knows what is most important. He goes on in this psalm, and in others, but it shows the context in this psalm that he's, he's fighting. He's always aware of the battle. Sometimes it was literal battle. People are seeking his life while he's writing poetry in a cave. Let that settle in for a little bit. Other times, it's a spiritual battle, and he can't sleep at night, and there's, there's things going on, but he's always aware of the battle. Let me talk to the men for just a second here. So many men get this wrong. We, as men in particular, are wired in such a way to go out and conquer and succeed and achieve and explore and do these different things. And you know what? That's God-given, and that's a great thing. I'm thrilled God's wired men that way. But sometimes, sometimes, in the dominating and conquering and excelling and defeating and succeeding, a man will wake up and realize a, a, a devastating truth in his life. His life is utterly devoid of beauty. And in that place, a man is like a shell of a person. It's a heart of stone, not a heart of flesh. And a man gets angry and depressed because they felt ripped off for going after that which doesn't really satisfy and always was meant to be a pointer to something else. 
Men, if you're in that place, let me say this. First of all, you are not alone. The reason I can paint this broad brush caricature is because a lot of men struggle with this and get this wrong. I look to King David, warrior David, and say, wow, here's David in the midst of the battle realizing the battle isn't the only thing. Otherwise, he would have gotten to the end of the victory and said, whoopee, now what? Instead, here he is saying, man, if I could have one thing, take all the battles, take all the victory, take all the conquering, man, it would be, it would be you, God. That's it. If you're in that place, man, let me, let me tell you this, and this is counterintuitive for many of you. It takes time to go consider the lilies of the field, does it not? It feels weird for a dude to be sitting on a blanket looking at flowers. I'll just say it. But I'll tell you what. Quiet your life down, whatever that looks like for you. Quiet your life down and listen. Be silent before God. Stop talking. Stop doing. Stop rushing. And, and I'll just tell you, the lover's whispering to you. He's wooing you. He's saying, okay, son, you done with all that now? It's time, you and me. It may not be in a field of flowers, but learn from Jesus, who was no wimpy man, that to slow down and do that is a good thing. Here's the question for us to, to discover and ask and challenge one another with. This is one of the prime ways I want our community groups to spend time on this. If you could limit your request of God to one thing, Would it be God himself or something else? If you could limit your request to God to only one thing, would it be God himself or would it be something else? Let me ask you a question. Genie in a bottle, you rub the lamp, you get three wishes. What's the secret? I mean, you learn this in, you know, about elementary school. What's the secret that you do there? Talk to me. Wish for more wishes, right? Robin Williams' character in Aladdin said, eh, you can't do that. Like he knew that's right where someone would go. My first and only wish would be unlimited wishes. Because then I'd be happy. I could just keep you know, using this thing over and over. What if we didn't get three? What if it was one? I mean, really, really press in on yourself. It's hard to do in a couple minutes in church while someone's talking at you. But do you see why this is a, a penetrating kind of a question? It's a lingering kind of a question, isn't it? I don't know. Would that be me? Would I write those lyrics in Psalm 27.4? As a king, as one who had access to really anything I wanted, battles to be fought, things to do, one thing would I ask. Don't you get the sense that David had found something truly beautiful that was on a completely different level than anything else in all the kingdom, literally, and he had, he had a vantage point to see that? Powerful, powerful stuff. Notice the progression here. Ask of the Lord. If you're a writer in your Bible, which I hope you are, circle or underline the word ask. We looked at this this week in our men's group. Ask, seek, and knock. The implication there is ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on it. Knock and keep on knocking till you get an answer. Keep pursuing. He says, one thing have I asked of the Lord. I hope you're asking of the Lord. Secondly, he says, seek. Seek after. Don't give up because it's not instant gratification. Don't be, don't give up because you've heard silence. Remember the silence of God last week? There is times that silence woos and draws us into something deeper. So seek and keep after it. Thirdly, the word gaze is in there, to gaze upon beauty. I already talked about this, but it requires time. 
It requires waiting. It requires some focus. It also requires putting down other things that are distracting to us. Some of you on vacation do a really wise thing and you totally unplug and you leave things that normally distract you away. You know what you find yourself doing? I don't know what kind of vacations you go on, but I'll share a little, little picture of mine. We're often sitting around at a lake or an ocean or a campfire, and you know what happens? There's a lot more of this. There's just a lot more looking at each other, talking back and forth, reminiscing, and, and memories are built. Isn't that beautiful? What a weird thing that we can be robbed of really, really precious things uh, by a screen or by great technology that helps us in some other things. That's the focus required to gaze on something. And finally, it says to inquire, to ask, to question. Sometimes the inquiry is this, how long, O oh Lord? We looked at that last week. Some of you are in a season right now. i got to tell you, it bolsters my faith. It, it, it lifts up my spirit when I know some of what you are going through in this room and I'm sitting near the back of the room, and I'm watching you worship God. I'm watching you sing to the Lord with all your heart, and I know your circumstances. Praise God for that. That is the grace of God in your life. That's all that is. I just want to call that out. Some of you are doing great. We had a fun time in men's group talking about the tide last week. Some of you are doing awesome. To see you here praising God, lifting up your voice to him, awesome. Don't walk away from the Lord when things are good. No matter what your inquiry is, Lord, I've, I've, I've been blessed with so much. How do you want me to, to be a good steward of it? How do you want me to appropriate funds and time and resource and the gifting I have? It's yours, Lord. God, I'm a poor man. I've been stripped of everything. I'm naked before you. How long, oh Lord? Do you see how both of those are just, are just relational? You're relating back to the beauty of God. Look at verse 8 for a moment. Verse 80 says this, You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. I talk often about calling back to God the promises he's made to us. Here, David is writing to God. Look, it's your initiating love. It's your invitation that's going on here. You said, seek my face, and then he just calls it back. Lord, I'm seeking your face. We're about ready to sing a song. Lord, you have my heart. It's an old school song. If you grew up in the church, don't let it just tickle past your ears. Let it be a prayer. Let it be like this. Lord, you've said, seek my face. I'm seeking your face. Here I am. Tell God. Let your ears hear your voice say, today, right now, I'm setting aside a time, a, a time aside to seek your face right now, God. That's what I'm doing here. I hope you budget those in to your life. God is the greatest gift that he could ever give, and that's why David starts there. The rest of the psalm that we're not going to look on, because there's a lot of messages on this one, is that David then seeks God for his blessing, which shows it's not wrong to seek God for his blessing, but do you see the order? He goes after his being first. God, it's you I want. You're the one thing. Now, I'll seek you for the blessing as well. He's asking for security. He's asking for status. You can read it. 7 through 12 is all of him pursuing and seeking God for the blessings he gives. But it's only after he seeks him as an end in itself. In the end, the heart longs not for what God gives, but for who God is. Your heart, friends, longs for who God is, not the things he can do for you, not the blessings he can give to you. 
to see him and to know him and to be in his presence. That's the gift. And that's what would prompt a person to say, it would be better to have that for one day than to line up a few years of being out living in the best this world has to offer. You know what's powerful? I'm looking at some of your faces. Some of you have told me stories of exactly that truth. Some of your stories have unfolded that way, haven't they? Man, I was a wanderer for several years, for a decade, for however long. I've tried it. I traded all for the pearl of great price that I found in the beautiful one, in my Savior. I love it. That's a powerful testimony. One quick um, practical thing. We're talking about some cerebral stuff here. I get it. When, when, when we're talking about beauty, it does not fit neatly into a 45-minute lecture on something. Let's just kind of bounce around. You miss it. You destroy it if you do that. But I do want to give you a couple of practical takeaways. Here's the question I want to look at. How do I keep gazing on real beauty? How can I stay focused on that which is truly beautiful? To do that, I want to, I want to do what Jesus did, and that is to say this, that nature, the, the natural reveals the spiritual. Okay, that's what Jesus was doing when he's talking about lilies and he talks about the love of God. The Bible celebrates beauty, but the Bible also warns of the deceiving nature of beauty. I'll show you a couple of places. Proverbs chapter 31, verse 30, you can write it down or turn there, but Proverbs 31, 30 says this. It calls charm deceitful and it calls beauty vain. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. If you put that into the context, it is a, it is the proverb writer describing for you an excellent woman. And every high school guy that's growing up in church ought to know this passage really, really, really well. It's to read that and say, what does that look like? And every high school girl who's growing up in church ought to know this and read this and say, what does an excellent woman look like? Who am I trying to be? What do you want to form in me? And it warns of the deceitfulness of charm and the vanity of beauty that is here today and gone tomorrow. Another place talking about beauty on a uh, human level is 1 Peter chapter 3. And in verse 3, it says this. Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the wearing, or the clothing, clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Two kinds of beauty are being discussed here. Do you see it? Remember at the start of this, we talked about in Romans chapter 1 that there are these invisible attributes of God. There's this hidden nature and character of God. And then there's that which is revealed and that which is seen and that which is there in front of us. The two kinds of beauty are the seen and the invisible. There's the external and the internal. To put it in modern vernacular, you could say it this way. There's a kind of beauty you can sell a magazine with and slap it on the front cover of a magazine. And there's a kind of beauty that could not possibly be captured on the front of a magazine. Catch the picture? Let me throw out some deceiving beauties, some kinds of things that, that lead us 
to worship the, the creature or that which is created rather than the creator. There's skin deep beauty. Let me throw up. I will throw up. Sorry. I'm feeling great. The breakfast thing was a little much, but, uh, I'm glad we can edit. Um, let me toss out a couple of magazines that instead of going and doing research, I don't need to stand in front of the giant magazine rack. They're, they're losing bookstores. I don't have Barnes and Nobles around anymore, but they used to be, you know, like a football field of magazines, right? And that's, that's actually a decent, you just stand back from it. You just go back from that and look at that. In a way, what you're doing is you're looking at a wide swath of our culture and say, this is what we're buying. These are the creatures we're worshiping, in essence, instead of maybe the God we're giving glory to. Now, let me say this as a preface. This magazine being on your coffee table may not be a sin. I don't want to say it's not a sin because it may be a sin. I'm going to call it some magazines that may not be a sin for it sitting on your coffee table, but see if you track with me on these different beauties, okay? Two different kinds of beauty. The seen and the invisible. Here's some, here's some common patterns. Skin deep beauty. Allure magazine, cosmopolitan, cosmo, cosmopolitan, see, I can't even say it. On the one hand, and maybe for men, Sports Illustrated and Maxim. Now, Maxim, I will say that I think that is a sin, hands down, if that's sitting on your coffee table, just chuck that thing. But these are, these are some common magazines, okay? Let's move on. Eye deep. Eye deep would be, eye, eye deep beauty is things that are created uh, that aren't necessarily skin. Wired magazine and car and driver, okay? That might be the male version of it. Um, o magazine or Oprah, good housekeeping, people, and just that whole vein that kind of goes there. Here's a third one, pocket deep. And this might have to do with, if you have enough money, you can enjoy these things. But travel magazines and even National Geographic type magazines, are huge, huge sellers. There's something about seeing, right, that that exotic Hawaiian getaway or whatever, and it's always so peaceful there. It's always perfect there. The sand hasn't blown up and stuck to your leg or your eye from the sunscreen. It just looks really, really, really good. And we buy that. We do. We buy that hook, line, and sinker sometimes. Now, keep those magazines in mind as you listen to Scripture and kind of lay it over the top of it, okay? Listen to 1 John chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, skin deep, eye deep, pocket deep, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Do you see how if you are soaking in what is selling, because a lot of people, a giant chunk of people, find certain things beautiful. If you're soaking in that and just letting that pour over you, that will shape your thinking. That will shape your lifestyle. That will even shape your experience with God. He who does the will of God is going to last forever. The things we see, the things that we so often pursue, are passing away. Seek the beauty that is invisible. And outside of the context of the rest of this message, that sounds ludicrous. 
two quick responses to this kind of true beauty. One is worship. Beauty and art and sculpting and building. By the way, you could be a construction guy and you're giving honor and praise to God according to the Bible. You know why? The Bible prescribes musicians and it prescribes guys who, you know, carry a lunchbox and have work boots and sling a hammer around. Read about it. This is all in your Old Testament. These were all prescribed as worshipers of God as they built things, as they designed things, as they sang things, as they cooked meals for a feast, all doing it with excellence to the Lord. The kind of response we have to true beauty is to to produce and be beautiful. That's what it is. David has this kind of baton pass moment in 1 Chronicles 29. He's winding down his time. He's going to be anointing his son Solomon as a king. And there's going to be a temple that's going to be built for God. It wasn't in David's time, but it's going to be in Solomon's time. This is 1 Chronicles 29. David leads by example by personally devoting from his own personal treasures vast amounts of wealth to say, God, that kind of beauty, I just want to give. I just want to bring stuff to you. I want to worship for you. I want to sacrifice for you. By the way, take a magazine cover, cover, and what you see is people sacrificing, giving, praising, and worshiping in a secular environment or in a churchy religious environment. But we are worshipers. Every single person you will ever lay eyes on. Now, he leads by example by personally devoting his treasures, and the people and the king all rejoice because they had given willingly for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. Beauty like that is like the person who finds the pearl of great price and it says with joy goes and sells all he has and brings it so that he can get that. This is that same idea as that the people and the king all rejoice because it was with a whole heart. And then First Chronicles 29 verse 10 says this, Therefore David blesses the Lord in the presence of all the assembly and David said, Listen for beauty being called out by the king in front of his people here. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you. And you rule over all. In your hand are power and might. In your right, or in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. We ought to be reading the great prayers of the Bible. I read that and say, Lord, I have such a long way to go in my prayer life. I sometimes think so small. I call out such small things about you. The beautiful one had shown on David, had revealed himself to David, and you know what it, you know what it responded? He responded with worship. Let me bring you stuff because it's just a joy, not because you need it. I mean, from the words he just said, he didn't need it. But let me sacrifice for you and let me call it out to you in praise. Psalm 92 says this, It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to make melody of the lyre. 
In a moment, we're going to sing some more. That's what our worship times are to be about. It should just be responding to this beauty. Worship is one response. The second one is sharing. Think about this. I'll go back to Yosemite because I go there a lot. I used to love to take seniors. We had a, a run of senior trips where I would take seniors to Yosemite. My favorite one, hands down, was a time that we had a group of students who um, fortunately didn't have a lot of money because if they had a lot of money, we would have gone somewhere else like Disneyland or somewhere they had been before. But these were mostly non-adventurous, non-outdoor, non-strain-your-body type of people. Okay, This is the group I had. Loved them dearly. And although we had an open forum about what we would do with our senior trip, I can't tell you the joy I had when I realized we're going to end up at Yosemite with this group of people. So we go, and when we first rounded the corner of where you can kind of get a a look at the valley, we stopped and we got out of the car, and and at first it was just kind of milling about and whatever, and then I, I kind of led them around and they saw this scene. And it was so cool because I realized it was going to be a great weekend because they got it. They just sat there and go, whoa. And they made a few kind of snarky comments like, you don't see that in a video game. And, you know, like they had to translate it back to their world where they had been. But they, but they sat there and, and there was a certain kind of reverence. They're like, wow, this is, this is really powerful. Over the next couple of days, instead of taking them on strenuous hikes every day, uh, that would just cause a disdain for, for nature in Yosemite. I did this. God wisely put up my mind to do it every other day. So we went on day one, and they knew they weren't have to do it day two, but guess what they wanted to do on day two because they knew they didn't have to? They wanted to go back and do more bouldering and creek walking and checking out, out of things while we're here. Loved it. I love to share that which is beautiful. And so do you. Think about food. When you go eat something, and it's amazing, and someone talks about it, you go, oh, you've got to try this. Come here, you have to try this. Some of you are like this with music. My poor wife, our dating years was chock full of this. No, 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 you haven't heard of this band? No, listen to this. You have to hear this. Now, check out this part right here. And, and I just, I, I couldn't help. I wanted to share this with someone else. Worship is one response to true beauty. And sharing it with other people is another response. You don't even have to muster this up, do you? You love something and you go, man, I want to share this with you and show this with you. We've been visited by true beauty. John chapter 1 verse 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Talking about Jesus. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And the gospel writer John goes on to recount what happens when John the Baptist points out, behold, beauty. There he is, the Lamb of God. What happens is a chain effect of guys going, I have to go get my friend. I have to go tell my brother right now. Andrew is one of those kids that was like, he's texting while John's still talking. He's already there. He's already like, before we do anything, i got to go get my brother Peter. He's got to see this. We've found him. That's the response that we have. Come and see. I want to invite the band up, and as I said, we're going to sing this song. I don't want these familiar words to many of you pass by. Psalm 34.8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. If a life of worship, or if, if a life of seeing beauty births worship and then sharing, 
How great it is that that kind of a life actually shows off the beauty all the more. So that as you worship, you are reflecting, in essence, beauty back to God. As you share and act as He did, you're doing the same. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are not like us. Thank you, God, that week after week we get to come into a place and together be on level ground, gazing up, not just at an amazing formation in nature, but, Lord, at one that should we have a thousand years to speak of you and all the words available to us, God, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to describe you. I pray that the profound truth that you have invited us to seek your face, that you have initiated love with us such that we could respond, would land heavy on us right now. Pray that our lives would be drawn to worship, drawn to share as we gaze upon your beauty. In Jesus' name.